This is Connected to Chicago, a look at the top stories of the week with the people making, covering, and talking about the news of the day. Now, Connected to Chicago. And welcome to Connected to Chicago. I'm Nick Gale. On Monday, Mayor Lori Lightfoot presented her proposed fiscal year 2022 budget to the full city council. Some are for it, some are against it. But in outlining her $16 billion budget, the mayor presented how she wants to spend some of the money. Her budget includes $126 million aimed at helping families through programs such as a monthly cash assistance program for low-income households. Other initiatives, $103 million for health spending, including in-home services to new moms and victims of gender-based violence, $85 million for various violence prevention programs, $9 million on environmental spending, $65 million for youth programs, and $32 million aimed to help the homeless. There are many truths about the city that I know. These truths, I know these truths from traveling the neighborhoods walking the streets and seeing and hearing from residents firsthand. Whether on the north side in neighborhoods like Belmont Cragen or Portage Park, or the lower southeast side in Hegwich or East Chicago, the west side in East or West Garfield Park, Austin, North Lawndale, downtown in the Loop or Streeville, or on the southwest side in Pilsen or Little Village, in neighborhoods on the south side spanning from Hyde Park to Woodlawn to South Shore to Roseland, Inglewood, and so many neighborhoods in between. I know that our people, Chicagoans, are tough and resilient. Chicagoans are proud of who they are, their families, and their heritage. Whether that history began here, in this city, or our country, or some distant land. And know about it, no one should ever doubt our grit and determination. I also know that in this particular time, there are also other inescapable truths. Our people are hurting and in need of continued support and healing. A recent survey found 27% of Chicago adults lost health care during the pandemic. 33% of employed adults had reduced hours or lost pay. 28% of Chicagoans experienced food insecurity during the pandemic and that percentage for black and brown adults was far, far worse. And 17% of adult Chicagoans reported experiencing severe psychological distress during the pandemic, with significant numbers of adults feeling isolated, nervous, and hopeless. Yes, this most recent chapter of our Chicago history has been brutal, marked by too many stories of hardship, pain, and even death ushered in by the insidious reach of a global pandemic, first of its kind in 100 years, which brought a, with it a pandemic-sized economic meltdown, civic unrest, and unacceptable levels of violence. But we must be honest and recognize that the fault lines revered, revealed during the pandemic were actually decades in the making, born of persistent, intentional acts dating back to the earliest days of our union and compounded and refined over time. Life expectancy gaps of 15 years or more between black and white people in this city did not happen by chance. Lack of access to high quality, affordable health care, which spawned the underlying medical vulnerabilities exposed and exploited during the pandemic, 
was not an accident of history. Lack of opportunity in jobs and education is not the fault of those victimized, and certainly not the natural order of things. Similarly, gender-based violence that has escalated to epidemic proportions in these last few years are the result of us turning away from that cold reality that violence at home spills into the streets as traumatized and victimized children of today can be tomorrow's violent adults. Rampant, unchecked opioid and heroin use that leaves some area of our city looking like a scene from The Walking Dead, don't tell me that that just rose up organically. <clears throat> There's a long list with its origins and roots traceable to systemic racism, failure to invest in people and places, and none of this has happened by accident. They are two sides of the same coin and designed and forged to benefit some off the backs of others. This, intentional, this is intentional and must be changed. The costs have been and continue to be unacceptably high. The pre-pandemic murmurs of anger and frustration a pain and suffering that have trapped too many in despair and denied generations the ability to realize their God-given potential. Those murmurs, my friends, are now a loud chorus, a chorus that demands our attention. Yes, that chorus sometimes sounds discordant notes, but in the yearning for something different, something better, those uplifted voices are also singing a sweet song of hope about the future and what is possible if we listen to the will of the people. A consistent refrain that I have heard is that we must be equally intentional in righting these historic wrongs. First and foremost, we must be intentional on behalf of our children. We must show up for our children from cradle to graduation, so that they are set up for success in their lives' journeys, regardless of the circumstances into which they are born. We must be intentional on the side of our vulnerable residents, seniors, the homeless, the addicted, the jobless. As we have enough riches in this city to extend a hand to our brothers and sisters, our neighbors who need us. We must also be intentionally on the side of our working families. The daily struggle of so many need not be a given. It's a trap that saps people of their ability to lift their heads high, to feel like their work has actual value. Saying that we believe in the dignity of work is meaningless if that work cannot sustain a life. And it is in that environment and a work environment that is patently unfair to the workers. We must do more for our working families, and we must keep working intentionally and persistently to eradicate poverty and create economic opportunities for people to sustain a good life and pass on wealth to the next generation. Ladies and gentlemen of the City Council, in this historic moment where we stand on the precipice of our new normal, the destiny that we will create for ourselves and future generations, we must commit ourselves to being intentional, but in a very different way than the past. Our new intentionality must include forging a new pact with each other and the people we serve. 
As leaders, we must commit to a new set of truths, starting with the truth that equity and inclusion must be at the center of all of our work. And then in our post-pandemic recovery, no one, not anyone, can be left behind. But in order for these truths to be self-evident, to become an intrinsic part of our destiny, so that we can make real our new declaration of truth and liberation, we must find common ground. We must be united in our path forward. Unity, an obvious point, but often difficult to achieve, particularly in these times. Lightfoot outlined her full plan for spending nearly $2 billion in federal funds from the Biden administration's American Rescue Plan towards filling the city's budget hole over the next three years. Last month, the mayor had projected a $733 million deficit in the 2022 budget. Our first step in this time of lost revenues is closing our gaps in lost revenue for 2021 and addressing the deficit for 2022. As I announced last month with the release of the city's budget forecast, the gap for 2022 budget was $733 million. Since then, we have been working to close this gap in a way that brings our city forward to fully recover. And we propose to do this without any new taxes, no reduction in city services, and no layoffs. You can clap for that. <laughs> and the foundation for this good news was set with the hard but necessary choices of last year's budget. I want to take a moment to acknowledge and personally thank the 29 of you who voted yes on the 2021 budget and set all of us up for success by agreeing to a set of structural changes that will endure from year to year. Thanks to your hard work last year, all of us and our residents and our taxpayers in particular have more predictability and stability and as a result, a better fiscal future. And what is the state of our economy? I'm happy to report that our economy is definitely on the mend. To date, just this year, over 130 companies have made pro-Chicago decisions with either 56 new locations or 71 expansions. Our hotels are filling. Our conventions and large group meetings are definitely on the rise and our unemployment rate is dropping. And there is a buzz of hope and optimism that is sweeping out the dark cloud of gloom that has lingered for far too long. I am equally happy to report that while we still suffered revenue losses in 2021, the flip side is that we've seen better than expected revenues of approximately 210 million in 2021 which helps us address a portion of our revenue losses. To further close these gaps and crack a balanced budget, we will leverage $298.2 million from savings and efficiencies, which represents $67.8 million from personnel and health care savings, $230.4 million in fiscal management recovery initiatives, which includes 20 million of refinancing savings and 25 million in sweeping agent counts. And 491.1 million of increased revenues, which includes 385 million of American Rescue Plan funding, 24.9 million in TIF surplus, 
and 81.2 million in new property growth and improved revenue projections. This gap closure strategy builds on and is a result of a number of accomplishments we've racked up on our journey towards structural balance. Over the last three years, we've identified over one billion in structural solutions. And we did not deplete our revenues. We completely avoided massive layoffs. And in 2022, with the budget we are proposing, we will climb our pension ramp, which means that for the first time in city history, all four pension funds will be paid on an actuarially determined basis. And Madam Treasurer, you know this is huge. And also in 2022, we will be climbing yet another ramp, the scoop and toss ramp. This means that annually we will be paying off between 225 and 325 million in debt a year. As a result of climbing this ramp, we will be able to make investments that will reap economic and social benefits as well as make Chicago a better place to live rather than just rolling over credit card payments and building up a mountain of debt. These, most of these accomplishments occurred in the middle of a global pandemic. Let's not forget that. And as a result of these accomplishments, we expect to reach structural balance by 2023, which bodes especially well for our prosperous post-pandemic recovery. The mayor said some of those federal funds will also go towards supporting tourism, small business support, the arts and community development, among other areas. As I have said many times, budgets are not just a math problem. They are value statements. And this time, our value statements must be bold, definitive, and transformative. Our ultimate goal with this recovery and resiliency budget is to recover and develop Chicago into a safer, stronger, and more prosperous city in which people can take root in, raise a family, build a business, and make a better lives for themselves. And we will know we've accomplished this ultimate goal when we've created Chicago where all of our communities feel safe and protected from violence, including the gang-related and often retaliatory violence we are experiencing in our streets and the gender-based violence that we see in our homes across the city. Where less young people are out of school or out of work and more are connected to opportunity and the ability to make and build a sustainable life. Where residents have increased access to education, affordable housing, a stable and good paying job, high quality health care, food insecurity, food security, and mental health supports they need to heal from individual and collective trauma. And where vacant lots have been transformed into spaces for leisure, living, and commerce. To get to this particular promised land, this budget proposes the specific uses for the $1.9 billion in American Rescue Plan funding and an additional $660 million in enhancements to the Chicago Work Capital Plan to develop and deepen investments, create a new series of ones, and to build out the infrastructure we need in, to maintain ourselves for generations to come. In other words, we must think about these investments as a commitment to our immediate and most urgent needs while building bridges to the future that is just over the horizon.
Details about each of these investments can be found in the budget book, but I want to highlight a few in particular. Let's talk about community safety. I know that community safety and thriving communities are at the top of minds of all of you and our residents wherever they live in Chicago. That's why this budget proposes over $400 million in investments across various initiatives to not only enhance community safety, but bolster our city, our safety, the comprehensive violence reduction plan we released back in October 2020. These very specific community safety investments include $45 million for community and safety initiatives, including violence intervention programming and supports for community groups. 20 million for youth intervention programs like the SCAN program, which provides wraparound supports and case management for justice-involved youth. 10 million for a youth deflection and diversion program and the expansion of the officer wellness program for the Chicago Police Department so our incredibly hardworking police officers have the resources they need to recover and heal from the stress and trauma they also experience every day. Too often, when we talk about community violence, we forget the victims. We know of them, but they are more than just crime statistics. Their lives are deeply impacted by the violence. And once it comes to their doorstep, it lives on in some form forever. This is particularly true of child victims, like four-year-old Michael Moultrie, Jr., known by his family as MJ. We must recommit ourselves to better protecting our residents from violence, particularly our children. But say their names and never forget that their lives, no matter how brief, had meaning and purpose because they are all God's children and they are all loved. Victims and witnesses will benefit from a number of investments that we are making, including mental health, housing, and other programming. But this year, we propose a first-of-its-kind dedicated investment for victim support of $10 million. <laughs> Community safety must also encompass giving returning residents a way to a life of stability and safety in the legitimate economy. Every year, thousands of individuals, mostly men from the south and the west sides, come home from prisons and jails all over Illinois. Having paid their debt, we have a responsibility to support their successful reentry to our neighborhoods. Right now, far too few are able to completely or evenly, even partially turn their lives around. That's why, in addition to investing $10 million in a reentry workforce program to expand workforce training opportunities for formerly incarcerated individuals, to retain employment and stabilization services, we also will release a roadmap entitled A Roadmap for a Second Chance City later this month with key recommendations for actions the city and our partners across sectors must take to reduce barriers to health care, housing, and economic mobility of returning residents. And in 2022, with this budget, we also propose to create a director of reentry role within the mayor's office to lead the charge of this work. So those are just some of what the mayor says are highlights within the budget. And in the weeks to come, as aldermen read through and break down the spending plan, 
You can bet more will come forward in favor of or against the massive spending plan. Up next, our reporter roundtable. This is Connected to Chicago with Bill Cameron. A look at the top stories of the week with the people making, covering, and talking about the news of the day. Podcasts are available online at WLSAM.com. And now it's time for the Connected to Chicago Reporter Roundtable. We welcome in this week Ray Long of the Chicago Tribune, Mark Conkle at ChicagoPatch.com, and Alice Yin, who covers the county and all things happening with the Obama Library for the Chicago Tribune. Thanks all for joining me. Let's get right into it, uh, if we will. Uh, we'll start with the Obama Presidential Center. The president and uh, former first lady are going to be in Chicago on Tuesday, breaking ground. This has been a long time in the making. Uh, Alice, what's what's the latest with this? Uh, they're going to break ground, and are we going to see construction start here right away? Um, actually, construction already began last month following the um, Supreme Court denying a bid to halt construction. Um, but it's mostly just been moving around dirt, ripping up tracks, maybe um, selling some trees. So right now it's pretty much just dirt mounds now. But um, there will be just construction in the background during the groundbreaking. That's what you're asking. Yeah. Well, and as far as uh, a timeline, do we have, uh, are they still on track or did the lawsuit kind of throw things off for a while? When are we going to see maybe the actual opening of this? So the um, most recent date they've given, 2025, is still on track, according to Valerie Jarrett, who confirmed that again this week. But that definitely was not the first opening date they had planned. It was actually supposed to be this year before the federal reviews, the lawsuits um, kicked in. And, and it's, are they still looking at this is going to be, have a big economic impact for that part of the city? Um, would you know anything about projections there, jobs, or what kind of money it would bring in? Um, I don't have that off the top of my head, but they're sticking with the earlier projections they made uh, years ago that it would bring some millions to the city and um, hundreds or maybe hundreds of thousands of jobs. I'd have to look that up to be sure, though. Okay, fair enough. Mark, um, you know, there was a lot of controversy about this, where it should go. It eventually ended up there in uh, Jackson Park. Um, are there still some, some folks out there that are opposed or has everybody gotten on board? Well, I thought it was interesting in Alice's story in the Tribune where uh, her quote from um, Valerie Jarrett that said, hard things are hard and how they, you know, they ran, they ran this location through knowing that they were going to be challenged for putting it on the lakefront. And, you know, I lived on Pullman and I spent a lot of time, you know, down by the lake in Hyde Park. And I will tell you, that um, the location is a is a big pain for a lot of people. They're, you know, they're getting rid they're getting rid of Cor- Cornell Street, you know, between uh, from Stony Island to the museum, and um, you know that that's one of the great shortcuts, you know, for Southsiders uh, coming from downtown. And um, Stony Island is in a really big road. It's it, I think a, a lot of people are kind of frustrated that it's there obviously some community groups are worried about gentrification and you know when you spend time in Hyde Park you can see how you know the footprint of um, University of Chicago into Woodlawn and you know now this the Obama Center um, you know a lot of people who enjoy you know the space of uh, Jackson Park and you know all the amenities there 
um, you know, I do have trepidation. Personally, I kind of think once it's done, it'll, you know, we'll get used to it like anything else. But, you know, it, it, it's a hard thing for people to swallow. And, and politically, you know, this is a monument to Obama. He wanted it on the lakefront. He got it, you know, thanks to Rahm and Valerie. And, all. Mm-hmm. and Alice, this isn't a presidential library, as has been like the tradition that we've seen, but a presidential center. What's what's the difference? Um, is it the way it's funded or the way it's run? Yeah, um, so... Trying to remember. Um, so his actual records are um, somewhere in Hoffman Estates, and um, what makes it not a library is that it's not run by the. Uh, it's there's no um, influence from the association that generally runs these presidential libraries, so there's less oversight. He has talked about wanting to instead digitize the records and make it um, accessible to all, but um, the caveat to that is there is less of that influence. Um, and he can kind of do more of what he wants for his will, records. And will he, will he maintain an office there? Will there, you know, will he continue doing maybe fundraising efforts? Can he do that out of that space? Yeah, there will be, um, Obama foundation offices at that center. Um, although I'm not sure how often he's going to be visiting there. We're going to switch uh, gears for a minute. Ray, uh, we've seen yeah. it before. Uh, and it's happened again as a state employee dipping into the cookie jar, getting caught. This time it's a former top official with the Illinois State Police Merit Board. You had a story about it in the Tribune this week. Right. Uh, this is a, a case of somebody who was a financial officer who was, uh, had access to the, the payroll at, at the, of all things, the Illinois State Police Merit Board, which is a place that uh, is set up to over oversee promotions, hirings, and discipline of, of state cops to make sure that politics are out of the situation. But um, what we have here is a person who was the top finance officer. Her name was Jenny Thornley, and she's accused of, of official misconduct, forgery, and theft. She's accused of, uh, in an indictment that came down, brought by uh, this unusual office uh, called the uh, Illinois Appellate Prosecutor's Office, a special prosecutor brought in for a variety of cases, and um, it went down kind of quietly in Springfield this week, but she was indicted, and she was accused of uh, uh, significantly padding her her overtime, and uh, the indictment says that uh, the allegation is that uh, she uh, took in excess of $10,000 and up to $100,000. That's a range that's in the in the uh, indictment. We don't have the actual number yet, but uh, she allegedly was involved in, in documents that uh, forged uh, the signature of her boss, uh, Jack Garcia. Now, the political twist in this is, is really the fascinating part of the story, actually. Um, you know, stealing money goes back... Uh, a long time in Springfield, as you said, Nick. But <laughs> what we've we've got here is that uh, Thornley accused her boss of sexual harassment, and uh, that uh, then she reached out about the time he started investigating uh, her uh, overtime issues. She reached out to multiple ranking officials in the Pritzker administration, including. First Lady M.K. Pritzker. And um, what the Pritzker administration said is that uh, 
They then um, referred Thornley to a variety of, of uh, other administration officials, including Anne Spillane, the top general counsel of the governor's office, and um, uh, with both charges flying back and forth uh, from each other, they ended up putting both on administrative leave for a time. They reinstated uh, uh, Jack Garcia, the boss, uh, last year, and she's uh, she was uh, cut loose uh, last year, and she's uh, got a suit. They've got a civil court uh, claim and counterclaim going on over the sexual harassment case. It was independent review uh, uh, of this uh, allegation of both allegations done by by a former federal prosecutor and uh, she came up with the conclusion that there was sufficient evidence to uh, allege uh, the theft and the payroll padding against Thornley but there was not sufficient evidence to go ahead with any kind of allegations uh, against uh, Garcia, the boss. So it's uh, been a, a saga that has had many twists and turns, but the latest is that uh, this uh, major indictment came down uh, just last week. Well, and so, you know, so Jenny Thornley, she also did some work for Pritzker's 2018 run for governor. Right, right. Uh, Thank I mean, you for mentioning that, yeah. Yeah, so what? I mean, that is that certainly going to hurt Pritzker? I I would think. Well, they're they're obviously uh, uh, ex- trying to explain what happened there, but she um, because she worked on Pritzker's campaign, she knew a lot of people, and she mm-hmm. uh, uh, bombarded uh, some of the top officials in the administration with emails to tell them uh, what was going on, and she uh, even in her email to MK Pris. Pritzker, the first lady, she said, uh, Thornley said that uh, uh, I wanted to make sure JV knew what was going on. So um, the allegation on the other side is that basically Thornley um, started to get uh, investigated for the payroll padding and then uh, claimed sexual harassment. And then um, uh, the allegations on her end have at least not held up at this time, but there's still a federal case uh, swinging back and forth. Well, I got to ask Mark, Mark, what do you think? Ammunition for any Republican challenger? Is this going to come up? Oh, I don't know. Isn't J.B. Pritzker untouchable in Illinois? Um, You know, (laughs) I I, am. I think, I think it's really great, Ray, that you, you know, you you found that, that text message to MK and um, you know, I, I didn't know that she would be involved in, you know, going like government elements, really. You know, it seemed like she's kind of been hands off. Maybe I'm wrong about that. But, you know, I, I think that uh, I think that, you know, people stealing in state government far for the course, people being connected to um, politicians um, stealing money also par for the course. It's a, it's, a, it's a very interesting twist. I really don't know what to make of it. Ray, do you do you think that um, do you think that this touches Pritzker at all? Well, I think that uh, a lot more would have to come out before it becomes a major thorn in his side. Um, their response uh, to me now um, 
you know, this is this is their side of the story. They're uh, going to put it in the best light. But their response is that when Thornley reached out uh, to people that she knew through politics, uh, people that she knew in the administration uh, through politics, um, she uh, was told uh, to go uh, talk to, um, you know, either law enforcement or they referred her to um, uh, the proper channels that she should follow. Now, uh, she did talk a long time to Anne uh, Spillane, the general counsel. And so um, Spillane's a, a veteran, of course, who knows how to handle things. So it it right now has not turned out to any type of bombshell revelation that could uh, waylay or, or put some kind of major uh, dent in into Pritzker's uh, uh, attempt to to get reelected or anything like that, but it could uh, become a, um, one issue in a set of many that an opponent would like to throw uh, when he throws spaghetti at the wall at, at Pritzker trying to take him down. President Biden uh, is going to be in Chicago. I think it's on Wednesday uh, to highlight his vaccine mandate uh, for businesses. Um, I'll go back to um, to Alice and ask her, um, where are we right now with with the covid? You've you've covered uh, some of the numbers here. Um, what's what's the latest? Yeah, um, I was actually kind of surprised when I heard that was the topic you wanted to talk about, because um, the license administration is not there yet with covid um, vaccine mandates. Um, she, you know, has instilled that for city workers and is having an ongoing fight about that with the FOP, but um, the larger population, people who would work in these businesses that would have these vaccines required under Biden's plan, um, I think she's approaching it more um, with a softer tone, trying to understand that um, in the city, uh, Black residents are the least vaccinated, followed by Latino residents, and a lot of it is because of um, medical distrust and um, racism um, in the medical industry, um, as she just talked about before. And she wants to instead use the, I would say, carrot method and incentivize them through gift cards, through um, giving them transportation or at-home vaccination. Um, so I, I don't think she's quite there yet in terms of um, the stick and um, requiring something that would be, that would fall on her to um, enforce and would probably be, that would probably be another headache. So. Is, is that well, effort you, working, though? Ha- haven't they tried to incentivize people? And, I mean, has it really worked? Um, I would say since late spring, vaccine, the number of vaccines every day has really just um, went down. And there have been some spikes maybe related to um, announcements of these incentives. And there have been hundreds, if not thousands of people who have participated, but um, it's it really seems that there is some frustration from her, from Dr. Arwady, that we're not um, where we would like to be at. Well, it's not only Chicago, but of course, downstate has not jumped on board um, with the whole vaccine idea. And you see breakouts around downstate, too. And um, it, it strikes me, too, that the higher the number goes of the kids who go back to school in Chicago and elsewhere, the higher the number of of actual COVID cases goes, the more people are going to be talking about 
you know, what are we really doing here uh, by sending our kids back to school? And so there's the element that, hey, we got to get kids in school. And there's the element of, hey, can we do everything we can to protect them while they're young? Well, we just have a, a couple of minutes left, and I know next week um, we're going to see numbers come out uh, from the Chicago Public Schools about attendance for the the first day, the first week, and of course that impacts uh, funding. Uh, Mark, you know a little bit about how this works. Um, what were the numbers for the first day attendance, or the percentage is all we have right now? We don't know the actual numbers, right? Right. I think that it was like a little more than 91% of students showed up on the first day and usually usually about 94% of students um, are there for the first day and so there's been a drop and last year um, was one of the biggest declines in student enrollment you know during obviously during COVID Um, so but there isn't a you can't really break down what the data says yet because it's it's not going to be released till later next week so we'll know more about you know, when it comes to demographics, you know, which students of which age, race, um, zip code, neighborhood uh, will are attending school or not. And, and we'll get a better picture of, you know, what, what funding will be like. Um, obviously, I think, you know, the beginning of school was kind of bumpy because parents didn't know whether or not they felt it was, you know, safe to send kids to school. We're hearing from the teachers union that says, it's not really safe and CPS, you know, doesn't really have enough protection. And the mayor is saying schools are safe. You know, it's the, it's, it's the same old, same old, but you know, we should be uh, getting more details about uh, who attended school for the first couple of weeks um, next week. And that's when it's supposed to come out. No, and I'm, I would imagine with, with COVID and maybe Alice, you, you would know this, um, but because of COVID, yeah, those those numbers I think are down partially because of of that and the uncertainty of how safe the the schools were going to be. But I, could I see something down the road where if the numbers are really low, that that they would argue with maybe uh, the state uh, or whoever about we need to we need to adjust these numbers because realistically we saw more students show up, you know, in week two or week three. Could something like that happen? Um, I'm not sure about uh, how that procedure would work, but I do know that, you know, these um, percentages, they don't include raw numbers. We don't know what the enrollment size was. And throughout COVID, a lot of people have speculated, have people just left the public school system entirely, like gone to private schools, gone to the suburbs, and um, what would that impact be on the demographics and the enrollment? And that's something I'm going to be waiting to see next week and how that plays out for the district. And that's all the time we have for the uh, Reporter Roundtable. My thanks this week to Ray Long of the Chicago Tribune, Mark Conkle of Chicago Patch, and Allison Yin of the Chicago Tribune. Up next, WLS's Kim Gordon. This is Connected to Chicago. Podcasts are available online at WLSAM.com. As Afghan refugees begin to resettle across the U.S. after quickly fleeing their country after the Taliban took over, a Rogers Park nonprofit is looking for volunteers to help tutor those who are coming to the U.S. Joining me today is Lauren Kearns, Chief of Staff at Forging Opportunities for Refugees in America, or better known as FORA. Lauren, welcome to Connected to Chicago. 
Hi, thank you so much for having us today, Kim. Well, we're glad you could be here. So tell us a little bit about how many refugees you guys will be tutoring. How many do you think are coming to the Chicago area? Absolutely. So we, um, so as a nonprofit in the Westridge neighborhood of Chicago, um, so we are existing in response to the fact that around the world, um, oppressors such as the Taliban in Afghanistan and the military junta in Myanmar, they use the denial of education to ensure that minorities remain oppressed. Um, and essentially, as a result of this denial of education, many refugee children are resettled here in Chicago, having never been to school, and many are unable to read or write at all. Um, and so we have um, re- refugees from Myanmar, the Rohingya refugees, Afghan refugees, and Bhutanese refugees. Currently, we have um, 60 refugee kids in our program where we provide high-dosage tutoring. Um, so each student receives two hours a day of one-on-one tutoring for over 2,600 hours a month of tutoring provided by for uh, volunteers. Um, and so we're, it's currently expected that in the coming months, um, there's going to be as many as 500 Afghan refugees being resettled here in Chicago. And we at Fora are ready to robustly welcome them so that the kids can get caught up to grade level to really succeed here in the United States. And just in the past couple of weeks, um, four new Afghan students have enrolled in our program. We've gotten them registered into school, and they're already on their way to really like building the educational foundations that are needed to really unlock the power of education here in the United States. And what age range are we talking about? And are most of these students girls? Yes. So we um, we provide a wide range of age groups. So starting from kindergarten to grade twelve, um, we really the whole whole wide age range of school age children are welcome to enroll in Fora. Okay. And and do you know are most girls? Or are we talking about all you know boys as well have missed years of school? Both. Um, so. In Afghanistan, it is many girls who have missed years of school. Um, but, for example, the Rohingya refugees who we also serve, um, they, it's really boys and girls. So Fora's population is about 50-50, boys and girls. Okay. And so I know that tutors, obviously, they need to get to be caught up to speed on reading, writing, arithmetic. And, mm-hmm. and, and um, I'm sure you know, they need help with their English. But there's more that the tutors can do as well as just like the basics, correct? Yes, so we provide a full curriculum um, that's really individualized to each student. So we provide, um, so we do testing on each student so that we can really pinpoint what their exact level is um, in reading and math so that we can then provide a curriculum that helps them get caught up to grade level. Um, so tutors are like of all like ages and um, abilities are welcome to apply because there's really, through the curriculum that we provide, it's really a guided experience for the tutors um, to be able to work individually with a student to help get that student caught up to grade level. Thank you so much for being on with us today. I know the Chicago community. I know that people will step up and volunteer, and education is is so important, and especially for these young people who are going to make in America their, their new home. So we really thank you for your time. Thank you, and I thank everyone who is involved in like robustly welcoming all of these new refugee families into Chicago because it really it makes such a difference, and it's so needed right now. And we at Fora are, are ready ready to be part of it. Great. Well, thanks so much. Thank you, Kim. Connected to Chicago, a production of WLS News. Podcasts are available online at wlsam.com.